This episode is sponsored by Gopher State Tape Library, a 5013C corporation. Established in 1974, the library has been archiving recovery talks of the many 12-step recovery fellowships across the globe. For almost 50 years, these have been distributed worldwide. The library is the only all-volunteer organization doing this work in existence. There are no paid employees. Thousands of downloads, MP3s, and CDs can be obtained at www.gstl.ecwid.com. The Gathering with Roger B. occurs monthly in Wyzetta, Minnesota. Attendees are 12-steppers, those who have been affected by another's addiction, and some who are simply interested in improving their personal level of life satisfaction using a variety of spiritually-based tools. It is also used as a tool for study groups nationwide. The Gathering's talks are generally tied to one or more of the 12 steps, but are always guided by spiritual concepts, principles, and ideas common to most faiths. Topics are drawn from a variety of sources, the 12 steps, many of the well-known wisdom texts, science, and other teachers that speak to a spiritual solution to life's challenges. Roger has been in recovery for over 40 years and has spent thousands of hours in service sharing his experience, strength, and hope. He has created curriculum for treatment centers and leads workshops and retreats throughout the United States and Canada. Roger is a spiritual director and offers insight into spiritually-based living skills that are relevant to all people, whether in recovery or not. So the disclaimer is this, I'm not appointed or anointed or endorsed or affiliated with any organization or group. This is just me speaking to you from my experience. The hope is that some of that's useful or the discussion afterwards will be useful. That's why we're doing this. And so um, having said that, I wanna talk, this has been interesting lately because um, it's been coming up in all kinds of conversations that I had and uh, Carl and I and another guy, a couple guys are going through uh, with a friend of ours, Still in the Speaks by Eckhart Tolle. And it's brought up some interesting thoughts for me. They're talking about stream of thinking has enormous momentum and we get dragged along by that momentum. Every thought pretends that it matters so much. It wants to draw our attention to it completely. Do you ever have one of those days where you're sitting around and your head is just like popcorn? Thought, 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 and it's all over the place and you don't seem to have any control of it, right? So he says, this is totally, he says, here's a new spiritual practice. Don't take your thoughts too seriously. Okay, fine. So then he goes on to say, the human mind in its desire to know, understand and control mistakes its opinions and viewpoints for the truth. Mistakes its opinions and viewpoints for the truth. It says, this is how it is. You have to be larger than thought to realize that however you interpret your life or someone else's life or behavior, however you judge any situation, it's no more than a viewpoint. It's no more than a viewpoint one of many possible perspectives. It's no more than a bundle of thoughts, but reality is one unified whole in which all things are interwoven, where nothing exists in and by itself. So that kind of thinking fragments reality, cuts it up into conceptual pieces. So now the challenge is, do I get that? Is that true for me? 
So now I look and I ask, where did my ideas and where do my viewpoints come from? And most of them were formed when I was a little boy, by about eight, nine years old. I would challenge you to think about this. Where did, where did I get my ideas from? I got them from my parents. I got them from school. I got them from observation. I might have got them from church if you were raised in a church family. And it never occurred to me that there was another way to look at it. So I'm on the page. I'm totally on the page. I get it. That's my viewpoint. It never occurred to me that there was another way to look at it. And it never occurred to me that possibly I could be wrong. So the way I see it is the truth for me. And the, the problem we run into here is the way I see it and the truth for me doesn't serve me. And I don't know what to do. And as that evolves, that viewpoint becomes concretized, becomes very practiced and very rigid. So my mind over time, as I'm growing up, just closes into a very narrow set of ideas and viewpoints. Um, here's one. My viewpoint, one of my viewpoints was uh, that um, the world's not a safe place. And then you practice that viewpoint. Your head, your subconscious takes the idea in and says, world's not a safe place. Okay, it's like operating software on your computer. That's running all the time, like your virus scanning. It's running all the time. And what my brain is doing now is it's taking sensory data and filtering it through the amygdala and saying, are we safe? Are we not safe? How unsafe are we? What's the risk, What's the risk level, right? It goes on and on and on. I don't know this is happening. That's just one little thing. But just taking that one idea, fear, I'm not safe. What does it say in the book? It's an evil and corroding threat. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. That's the truth. I get that. So knowing it is one thing. Doing something about it is a whole other thing. So what happens is, or what happened for me, I don't want to speak for you. We have these ideas, I'm not safe as one. Another one is I'm not good enough. My value is attached to my actions and my production, right? Grades in school, ratings in gym. You know, here's the curve and here's you on the curve. And that means all these people are better than you. So this is happening when I'm way baby young. And this is just my way of seeing it. But after a while, my way of seeing it becomes the only way I can see it, and it becomes the truth for me. So now, look at, uh, I was looking in the book, there's a whole bunch of examples of this. Um, here's one, uh, in the doctor's brain, the first letter to Bill, he's talking, his diagnosis is what? You're hopeless. That's a viewpoint. Then he says, he appears to recover. That's another viewpoint. Then ultimately, he says, you can trust anything they say about themselves. That's another viewpoint. The reason the doctor could change his mind is because he was willing to. But Bill couldn't change his mind. Who has Bill? Here's, a, here's the mind. A wonderful tool if used properly. If used improperly, it ends up running me through those filters. It owns me through the fear and the shame. It owns me. What are people thinking of me? Oh, am I looking good? Am I good enough? Do you love me now? Do you love me now? Right? So here's one. Clearly, his mind has perceived a problem. 
Liquor ceased to be a luxury, it became a necessity. But the viewpoint is what? I still thought I could control the situation. So he stuck. I woke up, this had to be stopped. I saw that I couldn't take so much as a single drink. I was through forever. That's the observation. What's the result? Shortly afterward, I came home drunk. Hmm. Interesting. So then he has the conversation with Abby. And we know there's all kinds of things Abby's talking to him about from his point of view. And Bill's willing, his, he's open enough to listen because he knew Abby. So Abby had some credibility with him. But as Abby's going through the ideas, Bill's running into his prejudice, his, his point of view. His point of view, and it needs to be changed. But he doesn't know that it needs to be changed. He's just banging up against it. What did I bang up against it when I got to AA? We would bang up, here's an idea. Can you change your point of view? Self-reliance isn't working. Here's a new idea. Can you change your point of view? Perhaps you're powerless. And maybe that's why you're your life's unmanageable. Can you change your point of view? What's the point of view? The shift is, I admit. I allow in this idea, powerless. That's a change in my viewpoint, but not a change in my behavior necessarily. I don't know about you guys, but I there were guys I drank with, and we used to toast to the fact that we're all alcoholics and we're probably going to die early. You know, we didn't even know what alcoholics were. We thought it was people who drank too much, right? So Ebby's presenting him with all his perception changes, all his viewpoints that got altered in the Oxford group. And that's what our challenge is. Can you change the view? Can you change the perspective from which you are looking at this? Uh, George Bernard Shaw, all progress requires change. And you can't change anything if you can't change your mind. Oh, that's nice to say, but the reality of it is much different, isn't it? Because I'm challenged with changing my point of view. Only you, only I can change the way I'm seeing things. You can try and help me see it differently, but until I am willing to see it differently, there's no shift. There's no shift. And so you end up with a head full of information and zero change. A head full of information and slowly dying or fast or rapidly dying. And you don't understand it. It's totally beyond my comprehension. So then they're talking... Um, if there's a solution, there's a bunch of questions in there about attitudes. And uh, the ability to not be able to change your mind, the end result is Bill starts showing up in hospitals. The doctor says, I think you have an allergy to alcohol. He likes that. So he changes his point of view to, oh, I have an allergy. But he doesn't know what to do with the allergy. So he's back in the hospital again. And the doctor's talking to Lois, and he's saying he's going to die in withdrawals or end up a wet brain in the uh, psych ward. He's hopeless. Bill hears that. His response is fear, right? And it changes his viewpoint for a little bit. But the viewpoint was, I, self, don't want to lose Lois, and I don't want to die. I'm not ready to leave yet. And fear, what does he report? Fear sobered me a bit. But the viewpoint didn't change. 
And then he's back in the hospital the third time. That's when Ebi's visit to him comes to him. And he then, I mean, where's that? At the end of this thing. It's pretty interesting. Um, sorry, wrong chapter. So here he is in the hospital the last time after the discussion with Ebby while he's drunk. If you ever work with a wet drunk, don't presume that they're not hearing anything. They might look like they're not hearing anything, but don't presume that. Do your best and get out of it, right? So now he's in the hospital the third time and his viewpoint is shifted. And he reports, there I humbly offered myself to God. As I then understood him, that's the qualifier. God, as you understand God. Okay, that's a, certainly a shift. To do with me as he would, I placed myself unreservedly under his care and direction. I admitted for the first time in myself, I was nothing that without him, I was lost. That's a viewpoint change, isn't it? But it's all in here. There's no action yet. Here comes the action. I ruthlessly faced my sins and became willing to have my newfound friend take them away root and branch. That's four through seven. A ship. I haven't had a drink since. My schoolmate visited me. I fully acquainted him with my problems. There's five. And deficiencies. We made a list of the people I'd harmed, to whom I felt resentment. I expressed my entire willingness, entire willingness, viewpoint change, right? To approach these individuals admitting my wrong. There's eight and nine. Here's a new viewpoint. Never. Never was I to be critical of them. So no argument. I was to write all such matters to the utmost of my ability. So I'm now got a new viewpoint. I'm testing my thinking by the new God consciousness within. Common sense thus becomes uncommon sense and on and on and on. So then he concludes this. This is pretty simple. But it's not easy. Why? Because it requires that you and I keep changing our viewpoint. We have to keep evolving how we see things. Because that's going to inform how we act. So then he says, simple but not easy. A price had to be paid. There's the intellect working. It meant the destruction of self-centeredness. There's the new viewpoint. I must turn in all things to the Father of Light who presides over us all. Instead of turning in all things to Bill. To myself, to my self-reliance, to my ego, to my ability to think and reason. None of those gods have worked. So you get into there as a solution. <laughs> I love this. <coughs> Excuse me. Get into there as a solution. And they give us this, this little riddle. Uh, we know while the alcohol keeps away from drink, as he may do or she may do for months or years, they react much like other men, people. We're equally positive that once they take any alcoholic, whatever, in their system, something happens, both in the bodily and mental sense, which makes it virtually impossible for him or her to stop. The experience of any alcoholic will abundantly confirm this. So this is really applicable to Jess. He's a weak soul. Right? A week sober. So you know something, Jess. You can live without drinking. 
good information to have. But is that really the problem? These observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink. If you don't take the drink, you can't have the allergic reaction. You can't have the phenomenon of craving. Drinking is critical. The cessation of drinking is critical to make a beginning in the shift. Therefore, conclusion, the main problem with the alcoholic center is in their mind rather than the body. If I can shift my view to that, I now don't have a drinking problem. It becomes a living problem, right? And now every step is gonna ask me, for me it did, is gonna ask me to radically change my view. Here's an idea, I came into AA and I thought it was fearless. All you guys were talking about fear and I thought, what a bunch of wimps, I mean, geez. And then I realized that I was informed that anger is a secondary emotion. The primary emotion of anger is fear. Oh shit, I got a lot of anger. I would cop to have an anger problems, right? Because it's much more macho than being afraid. So when I saw that, my viewpoint changed. And every one of these steps is gently asking us to just expand our consideration. Step two, where are you at with the power question? Well, I don't believe in God. That's a fixed idea. That's an old idea. That's an idea that I practiced for 30 plus years. So now, it's saying, well, what do you believe? And my fixed idea was this. My viewpoint was, let me tell you why I don't believe. And I had 90 good minutes of argumentation about why there is no God. But the viewpoint changed when I went from, this is what I don't believe, and this is why I don't believe, to what would it take for me to believe in something? What is something I could give myself to? right? I had evidence piling up all around me. I had things happening. Phenomenon to me. Cessation of drinking. Uh, withdrawal in a flop house with a couple guys helped me out. Then back into the clubs. I was a musician. I was playing in clubs at night. And in that situation, the, all the temptation was removed. Free booze, free drugs, and available women. None of it had any effect on me. I noticed it, but I didn't understand it. It was phenomenal to me. So a lot of a struggle in this area. I almost died in this area, literally, um, because I could not shift my viewpoint. And it sounds so simple, doesn't it? But when you're married to seeing things one way, and then a crisis, self-imposed crisis, like what we colloquially call our bottoms, shows up, you're faced either you're going to change or you're going to die, which would be a change too, right? <laughs> well, so it's an interesting idea from that perspective, you know, and I can see, I can see people that are recovered further down the path with me and I can see it working for them. But I, it can't work for me until I begin to believe that it might. I don't have to even believe that it will. My viewpoint was, I see Tim doing really well. I see Peter doing well, really well. I'm Reiner's doing well. I'm really happy for you guys. But the rest of that idea in my head is that it'll never happen for me. Why? Viewpoint, because I'm too bad. I'm too broken. I've done things that are unforgivable. 
That's why. That viewpoint has to shift. So here's an idea for shifting. Um, in the forward of the first edition, it says, many don't realize the alcoholic is a very sick person. Not a bad person. Not an MF person. Not a GD person. A very sick person. I did not perceive me as sick. I perceived me as bad. I perceived me as broken. Do you see? You can't get well from that viewpoint. That's a condemnation. That's a death sentence. So when I saw sick, something went off in my head. Because if I'm sick and you have a prescription for what's wrong with me, maybe I can take that prescription and get what you have. Hmm. I wonder. Here comes faith. Why did I do that? I didn't do it because I believed it was going to work. I did it because I believed it worked for you. That's a viewpoint change. Because when I came in, everyone I thought was lying. I thought they were drinking between meetings. You know, I didn't think any was sober. And then after months of observation, I realized some of you were. Viewpoint changes. Hmm. So I'm rolling with this. And it's a tedious process. The reason your recovery is slow is because I can't give up my viewpoint. I'm unwilling to change. If I'm unwilling to change, I never have to change completely. I just have to open my mind a little. <coughs> the second step doesn't say you have to believe in God. It says you have to believe in something other than you. Can I do that? What would that look like? I don't even know because I haven't ever freed myself of my viewpoint to ask to ask so whatever that those things i told you the cessation of drinking removal of the temptation and then the third thing that happened was the obsession was removed sometime in the first couple three months that voice had said let's grab a drink that just left and i was so insane and i was so ill that i didn't notice it for months so because of my experience which was my own, those things I just listed for you. And my observational experience was I see you people changing. I see you going through stuff that life presents that I don't know how to go through, like a divorce, like a wedding, like a funeral, like losing a job, like getting a job, like being successful. I can't stand being successful, so I sabotage it. I blow it up. Why? Because I have a viewpoint. I don't deserve it. So when I when I decide I'm going for this, what I'm really deciding is I'm going to change the way I'm looking at it. I'm going to change my viewpoint. And all I did was say I'm willing to believe in the possibility that there is a power. I didn't say I believed in it. I said I'm willing to believe in the possibility that this power may exist. That's all. Now I have successfully changed the viewpoint. So when I look at step two, I can say I'm on board. I'm not bullshitting. I'm not making up stories. I'm not doing compliance and conformity. I, I get it. For me, I get it. So I can go through this and not feel like a damn hypocrite. And not know that I'm a hypocrite. And it's interesting, too, because the power, whether you call it higher power or mystery or God or whatever you call it, it's there all the time. 
It's been there all the time. Whether I believe the power exists or not doesn't change the fact that it exists. But I have a viewpoint, no power. And now it's slowly changing to maybe there's a power, which implies this. I'm not the power, which informs the first step. You're powerless with the, the substances, and you're also powerless to manage your life. It's not that your life was unmanageable because of the substances, although it was a contributor, right? But now I'm sober a week, a month, six months, nine months, a year, two years, and my life is getting more and more unmanageable. So apparently the booze wasn't the big deal. It was a frontline issue, but it's been addressed. Jess, it's been addressed. You're not drinking for a week. So I know this. I broke that addiction. But here's the problem. The real problem is we're addicted to our viewpoint. We're addicted to our thinking. And here's the big problem inside of the big problem, which is I identify my thinking with me. I think I'm my thinking. Oh, shit. I'm sleeping with the enemy. I am not my thinking. I'm the experiencer. I'm the, I'm the, the thing that's experiencing my life. And I'm now I'm learning how to watch my thinking. Carl and I were sitting with, with Joel, and he was talking about when he learned to meditate, he'd watch his thinking. And the way he separated it out was he said, past tense, future tense, past tense, future tense, whatever the idea that came up. And he, he used that tool, past tense, future tense, to realize how little time he spent here and now. And that's what the... That's what the brain wants to do. That's what the ego wants to do. That's what the false self wants to do. It wants me to get distracted, shiny object. Oh, what's she thinking? Oh, what's she doing? Oh, what about my job? Got a new guy at work. Oh, shit. And just threat levels all over the place. It wants to keep me in that place so it can control me. And the control mechanism is fear and shame. And so till I start weaning myself off my thinking, I got a really little chance of making some progress. Here, here's the rest of that thought. The thinking mind is a useful and powerful tool, but it is also very limiting when it takes over your life completely. When you don't realize, it's only a small act, as, aspect of the consciousness that you are. So how does it take over my life completely? It convinces me my social security and sex instincts are at threat. They're being threatened. It convinces me of that, and it keeps me where? In the future, planning how to keep myself safe. In the past, reviewing all the injustices I've endured to make sure I build the right fortifications for the future. And so past, future, past, future, past, future, and Roger's never here. The only time you can shift your view is now. The only time you can pray is now. The only time you can call your sponsor is now. The only time you can go to the meeting at 7 o'clock. You can come at 8, but it'll be less people. Right? So it's a interesting process. When you're immersed in compulsive thinking, you're avoiding what is. You're avoiding the now. Because the ego doesn't want me to look at that. It doesn't want me to change my viewpoint because it uses its viewpoint to control me. And if I think I'm my thinking, I can't even get free of that. So how do you know? What's, what's, a, uh, what's an example? When you are, are in a situation and you go, oh, shit, I'm afraid. I'm getting really uptight. I'm getting anxious. 
That's you observing your thinking. That's you observing your mind. You can't be the thought and observe it at the same time. Do you get what I'm saying? Nod, blink, wave. Is this making sense? Are we tracking? Because it's critical stuff. If I think I'm my thinking, my God, that every thought I have, I'm responsible for? Oh, Christ. If my thoughts, if I, Patty and Choi used to say this, if I had a speaker on my head and you could hear all my thoughts, I'd be in jail. <laughs> Thank God. Here's the deal. I'm not responsible for every thought that comes into my mind. I'm responsible for what I do with them. And some of them are easy to dismiss because they're just, you know, <coughs> ridiculous. Maybe I was dropped here by aliens. I know that's not true. I didn't know it wasn't true when I was nine, but I know it's not true now. Okay. But what if my head starts doing this? I don't like the response I'm getting here. Some people have turned off their cameras. Oh, shit. What's going on? You know, now I'm off over here. I can't talk to you because I'm too worried about what you're thinking about me. So I have to start to learn. I'm not my thinking. I'm what's observing my thinking. When we talk about inventory and you ask yourself, we're going to talk about next meeting, October 7th. Do you believe it? October, jeez. When we look at the sex inventory, there's a question. What should we have done differently? Every one of us knows what we should have done differently. But we didn't do it. Know the truth, but don't act them. Right? Why? Because this thinking has fired up my instincts so much that my instincts and that thinking, the brain, is driving all my decisions. And I don't know it. It lets me think it's my idea. Perfect. You know, so when you start taking that apart in your recovery, I look back at my life and my viewpoint was, okay, you've scared the shit out of me as a kid. So I'm just going to do this my way. That's my viewpoint. And I did it my way until I was almost dead at 30. Okay. But when I got to this stuff and I started unpacking it, what I realized was I never did anything my way. I did it fear's way. I did it shame's way. I wasn't making decisions. I was reacting. And once you get hip to that, you start realizing this, this thing is dangerous. This is dangerous if it's not tempered correctly. If it's not, so what do we do? We temper it with new, with new principles. Instead of lying, cheating, and stealing, I'm going with honesty, integrity, responsibility, compassion, tolerance, empathy, prayer, meditation, kindness, helpfulness. You don't have to save the world from polio. You just got to do something nice. What's the 11 step say at the end of the day? Did you give more than you took? Pretty simple equation. Well, I never thought of it. Well, that's because you've never examined it. Examine it. What were you doing today? Were you thinking about yourself most of the time? Is that what you were doing? Maybe that's why you feel so insecure. Because <laughs> you intuitively know you don't have the power to fix what you think is the problem. Oh, this is so fun, isn't it? <laughs> Woo! So, um, here's here's the last thing I'll give you. Um, and this is totally spiritual awakening is waking awakening from the dream of thought. So here we are, confronted with all our incredible pristine ideas. 
and most of them are inaccurate. Most of them are distortions. And the way I know it is the outcome that they produce. What's the outcome? Futility, hopelessness, drunkenness, suicide, depression, isolation, loneliness, separation from God, separation from you, separation from the goodness. And as long as my head can keep me separated from the goodness, it owns me. And I am not my head. I am not. Well, ask yourself this. The thinking you're doing right now, where's that thought before you had it? Where's that thought before you had it? What did Bill say in the hospital after he had his white light experience? He said, down the page, he said, the thought came. Maybe there were thousands of people like me who would like to freely get what I've been given. Huh. The thought came. He didn't say I came up with this idea. Viewpoints. Viewpoints. If Ebby wouldn't have shifted his viewpoint in the Oxford group, there'd be none of us here. Then Bill had to shift his viewpoint. All through his story, what you're seeing, and all through your story, what we see in recovered people's lives is the ability to change their point of view. Usually it's at gunpoint for me. It used to be I wouldn't let go of anything until it was just too hot to hold. But later on, the disciplinary disciplinarian was not pain, it was love. He was, I want more of this because I feel better doing this, right? So now, Jess, I've suspended the drinking. Now I got to get on my horse and I got to find some people that are recovered that I can hook my wagon to and get some direction. Because if I try and do this alone, I got slim to none chance of pulling this off because I'll get sucked right back into my thinking. And I need to understand I'm not my thinking. I do understand this. I need new thinking. But to get new thinking, I have to let go of old thinking. And that's a problem because I am totally identified with my thoughts. But, 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 but it's the way I see it. Well, there's an infinite number of possibilities to see anything from. I don't know that. So now I'm just trying to back up, teach me. Show me. And then I run into these snags. You're going to make a decision? Yeah, I'm going to make a decision. Well, then you should be doing an inventory. Oh, you're not doing an inventory? But look back at one, two, and three and see what you missed. Because once the decision is made, the decision is I'm going for it. That's four through 12. And I need to be making steady progress. Because every one of these steps, and every one of these ideas in the steps are going to demand that I change my viewpoint. Sometimes drastically, sometimes just a little bit is enough to make some headway. I just need to make headway. That's why they say progress, not perfection. I'm growing towards perfection, which I'll never reach. But all I need to know is I'm getting better. At least I'm not doing that. At least I'm not waking up in my own puke. Let's start there. At least I'm not waking up in a jail cell. At least I'm not peeing my pants. You know, okay, good. Now, could you lie a little less? I don't know. That's right. That's radical. Lie a little less? Oh, I'll lie a little less. But there are certain things I have to lie about because I'm wedded to having you think about me in a certain way. And all of that's going to change if I just, to the best of my ability, not perfectly, just to the best of my ability, my honest gut level ability, address the questions in those steps. And when I have a question about the step, I've got to find a source I can talk to 
who can help me, who can straighten me out a little bit, who can give me some insight. Oh, I never thought of it that way. You ever have those conversations with your sponsor? You come there and you got your undies in a bunch and after 20 minutes of talking, oh, I never thought of it that way. Oh, interesting, interesting. I'll close with this. Before you, before you speak of peace, you must first have it in your heart. So this is Francis talking to his monks. So before you speak of recovery, you must first have it in your heart. We have been called to a higher calling. We have been called to heal wounds, to unite what's fallen apart, and to bring home any who have lost their way. I think that's what the 12 steps are. Called to be a healing agent, to be an instrument of your peace, right? To be a positive in the world rather than a destructive force. New episodes of The Gathering are published twice a month and can be found on Spotify and other major podcast apps. You can follow The Gathering on Spotify and others to receive monthly notifications of new episodes.